Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Highbrow Book Club podcast. We're joined with Emma Savoie, Austin Clark, and yours truly, Cameron Vidal. And we are going to do some broad strokes over a quick summary over the part four of Anna Karenina. Uh, yeah, let's just jump right in. Uh, in this section of the book, the Krenins are living together but are completely distant from one another. Krenin makes a point to see Anna every day to avoid speculation among the servants, but he never eats dinner at home. Both Anna and Krenin hope that a painful situation is only temporary. Meanwhile, Vronsky is having a boring week entertaining a foreign indigenary and wants to experience Russian culture. Foreigner thinks he is discovering the real Russia by partying with gypsy girls, which pains Vronsky since he sees similarities between the two of them as healthy, confident, yet shallow noblemen. One night, Vronsky receives a note from Anna asking to see when Karenin is away at a meeting. When Vronsky arrives at Anna's house, he's surprised to find Karenin there as his meeting ended early. Anna is irritated and makes snide remarks about Vronsky's previous night with the foreigner and the gypsy girls. Vronsky is saddened by how Anna has changed, both in terms of her physical appearance and her morals. She is now irritable and has gained weight. Anna becomes furious with Karenin and calls him a puppet and an unfeeling machine, criticizing him for lack of courage. She even suggests that if she were in his position, she would have killed a wife like herself. Ooh. Vronsky thinks that Anna's moodiness may be due to her pregnancy and asks when the baby's due. Anna responds that it'll be soon and adds that she will die shortly after giving birth. Vronsky d- dismisses her words as nonsense, but Anna insists that she had a prophetic dream about an old peasant man who told her she would die during childbirth. Meanwhile, Karenin is unstable to sleep after his encounter with Vronsky, and he's enraged with Anna, has violated the one condition he set for her which was to never receive Vronsky in his house. Crane informs Anna that he intends to initiate divorce proceedings and confiscates the love letters that Vronsky had set in her evidence. Anna pleads with Crane to allow her to keep custody of their son, Suryazah, but Crane refuses, stating that he'll never take the boy even though he no longer loves him. Um, on the following day, Crane consults with a divorce lawyer who, consumes, who assumes that Crane wants to file for a divorce by mutual consent. However, Crane clarifies that he intends to prove that Anna had an affair against her and plans to use the love letter as evidence. The lawyer cautions Karenin that such cases usually involve religious authorities and that the letters may not be enough evidence to prove involuntary exposure of the affair. The lawyer requests Karenin's permission to proceed with the divorce process as he deems fit, and Karenin agrees. Karenin is feeling frustrated after being undermined by a colleague at work and decides to leave for the provinces to salvage his professional reputation. On the way, he runs into Steva and Dolly, but he treats treats him distantly. Steva, who's happy with his new ballerina lover, invites Krenin, Levin, Kitty, and others to a dinner party. Krenin initially declines, but eventually reveals his plan to divorce Anna. Despite being shocked and concerned by Anna, Steva insists that Krenin attend the party. At the dinner party, Krenin is aloof and distant from the other, de- other guests. However, the food is excellent and the party is a success. During the evening, Kitty and Levin see each other for the first time since Levin's failed marriage proposal, and their mutual love is palpable. The guests engage in conversation about education and women's rights. Crandon suffers a setback in his career ambitions and shortly after receives news that Anna is seriously ill. He rushes to her side and finds her with a newborn daughter and suffer from high fever. Anna believes that she will not recover and pleads with Crandon to forgive her and Vronsky. Crandon tearfully grants her request. Vronsky is also present at Anna's bedside, and when he leaves, he is consumed with worry over Anna's impeding death. He returns home, is unable to sleep, and in a fit of desperation, shoots himself in the chest. Despite being badly injured, Vronsky survives thanks to the quick action of the servants who summon medical help. 
Crane is then surprised by the depth of his forgiveness towards Anna, and he finds himself drawn to her newborn daughter, also named Anna. One day, he overhears a conversation between Anna and Betsy. Betsy urges Anna to bid farewell to Vronsky before he departs, where he will be stationed. However, Anna refuses, stating that there is no point in seeing them again. As they leave, Betsy pleads with Crennan to allow Vronsky to visit Anna one last time, and Crennan responds by saying that it is Anna's decision alone. In her despair, Anna tells Crennan that there is no point in seeing Vronsky again. Crennan tells her that he is willing to allow the affair to continue as long as their family and children are not disgraced. When Steva visits Anna at the Crennan house, she confides in him that she can no longer bear to be with her husband. Steva suggests that the solution is simple. Anna must decide whether to stay with a man she never loved, who is much older than her, or leave him for the man she truly loves. Anna expresses her confusion and indecision, and Steva discusses the matter with Crennan, who shares a letter he has drafted to Anna. The letter concedes the decision about their future to Anna. Steva argues that only a divorce will make Anna happy, but Crennan is hesitant because of the scandal that will bring upon her. Steva suggests that a way to spare Anna public shame, Crennan can take responsibility for the scandal by pretending that he committed adultery instead of Anna. Crennan agrees with tears in his eyes. Upon learning that Crennan has agreed to grant Anna divorce, Vronsky rushes to her side. They express their love for each other and discuss their plans for the future. However, Anna feels uneasy about Crennan's generosity and cannot bring herself to accept his willingness to proceed with the divorce. In a bold move, Vronsky resigns from his commission, and the two lovers decide to embark on a journey abroad together, dis- disregarding the idea of a divorce altogether. Woo! That's the whole dun, summary. Dun, dun. That was a lot. I this is to be- like the shortest, <laughs> shortest section so far, but like the most material. Oh, no. I I kind of just went off with... Uh, it, it is pretty jam-packed. It's pretty short, but it's pretty dense. Um, but I think mm-hmm. it was some good broad strokes, but... Tell me, Cam, did you uh, did you have Chad GPT write that, or did you take notes? <laughs> no, I actually took notes on this one, Austin. That's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> done. great, great summary. Great one, summary. one thing Chad GPT can't do yet is uh, yet I emphasize that word <laughs> is uh, is run a podcast. Maybe, Dude, maybe can copy my voice. <laughs> maybe Notion could do it. Maybe maybe Notion's uh, AI has that capability, but not Chat GPT yet. Not yet. Can't take my voice yet. It can take, take my mind, but it can't take my voice. <laughs> Gosh. I'll never but, have my freedom. But that's all nonsense, though. We're keeping it classic. Uh, Emma Savoie, <laughs> would you like to talk about Anna Karenina, the character? Yes, of course. Yeah, so poor Anna is going through the ringer in this part, and it's hard to feel... It's a combination of you feel bad for her because there's so much going down, but then it's kind of hard to feel bad for her because she's put herself in this position. So it's a tricky balance. Um, And on the very, very first page, as Cam was mentioning, it talks about how Anna's kind of in denial is the first part of where she is right now. Um, It says that this situation is the most painful for her. Obviously she has the most shame for infidelity and things like that, but she doesn't, acknowledge that it's an issue that it's her issue to choose and to resolve um it says that she felt absolutely certain that soon it would all be settled and cleared up so although she had no idea who was going to settle it she was sure whatever would happen would happen very soon so she's in denial of her responsibility in this situation um the other thing that 
we see at the beginning of the chapter is that she is struggling with disappointment mixed with jealousy when it comes to Vronsky. Um, so that all stems out of a very insecure place, typically for women. And you can see that whenever whenever she's talking to Vronsky in the beginning, um, they refer to jealousy as the demon between them. So obviously it comes up a lot. And she just starts accusing Vronsky of his going back to his old style of life. And he keeps kind of calling out like, hey, you're, you're leaning back into this demon. This isn't reality. Um, so she's jealous, but she's also disappointed, which is really interesting. There's a really cool quote um, that kind of goes back to expectations that we were talking about in the first podcast, where it said that when she sees Vronsky, she's doing what she always did, comparing the image of him in her imagination, which was incomparably superior and impossible in reality with him as he was. And so Anna's kind of setting herself up for this disappointment by idealizing what she wants from Vronsky because she's trying to grab for some sort of solution, some sort of ideal in this chaos that she's living in right now. Um, whereas Vronsky is pretty cool at the beginning of the chapter. He's tasked with escorting this prince around who's kind of haughty and kind of like a bachelor lifestyle like Vronsky was before Anna. And Vronsky acknowledges that and can't stand those things about the prince and points out the distinctions between himself and the prince now. Whereas when he describes the prince to Anna, all that Anna sees is the similarities between Vronsky and the prince, the ways that Vronsky is still a bachelor and disappointing her. So she's looking at everything through this, this really warped lens, I think that stems out of her denial of everything right now. And they describe her as kind of a faded flower that had been plucked, um, plucked for its beauty, but then ruined because of it. And I think that's a really good summary of where she is right now at the beginning of the chapter. Um, mm. And then like Cam was saying, she has a dream where she's going to die at childbirth. And it's the same dream that Vronsky has. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask you guys, what do you think this dream says about Anna's psychology right now? Or what did you guys notice about her psychology? I think it's <clears throat> the dream is symbolizing her relationship with death because I mean, if you think about it, even if you go back to the ball where she was wearing like a black dress, I mean, I could be overlooking this, but that's a, I feel like Anna's character is grow as her character is growing in this character arc. She's her relationship with, she's getting closer to death. seems like as the book mm -hmm. progresses um, and now looking back, like at the ball, she was wearing like this black dress um, which was different from like Kitty's pink dress, but I mean, that's something you'd wear at a funeral. Um, but kind of foreshadowing, right? Kind of like foreshadowing. And now she has this dream. Um, and she's convinced that she'll die at childbirth. So she's very terrified with it. Um, but I but think do, it's so do you think the dream is? supposed to be foreshadowing reality or more of a projection of how she's feeling? Mm, that's a good question. I feel like reality, I feel like the dream is showing how like reality just hasn't caught up with the spiritual change that's already going on in her. Like mm. she in her spirit, like by, I don't know, by this like falling from grace and, um, 
kind of having like a moral death like her her morality has kind of died that she's now wrestling inside with you know her outside circumstances don't match what's going on inside of her um but do we i mean are we going to operate as if we don't know the end of the book or are we operating as if we do know the end of the book <laughs> i this feel is... like we shouldn't we shouldn't know the end of the book yet all right. No, well, like, we'll see what happens. Don't want it to be spoiled. I wonder. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that both <laughs> Vronsky and she had the same dream. I think that Tolstoy is trying to tell us something. You know, there's something going on here. Like what? Um. Yeah. Definitely, Anna is becoming associated. Anna and Vronsky's relationship is becoming associated with some sort of death. Um, and I, yeah, it's almost like this, like part of the book reminded me so much of like, uh, like kind of Gothic literature, like stuff that was being written in England where like, you know, there might, is there a ghost or is it some like creepy guy who lives in your attic? You know, is there some kind of like, it's like, it's not like explicitly, extraterrestrial or like um what's the word like magical but it's kind of like a little bit of that you know there's a little bit of like spiritual heebie-jeebies going on I was getting yeah. that vibe. and like yeah. the peasants talking about like the what was he saying like you've got to beat it into the iron or something i don't know mm-hmm. so you've got to like grind it and i was like yeah that's kind of freaky but uh yeah that's a good point i think that the the dream is a really good expression of her moral death and like mm -hmm. her insecurities through the dream but maybe tolstoy and having vronsky have the same dream is trying to also convey that the dream is a bit more of like projection of reality yeah but it has a Mm -hmm. little bit of both there um but yeah i think the in the end a good summary for anna right now is um, there's a quote from the book where it says it's possible to save someone who doesn't want to be destroyed, but if her whole character is so corrupt, so depraved that destruction itself seems to her salvation, what can be done then? So that's kind yeah. of where Anna is right now. She's, she yeah, thinks that does, death does, is salvation. Uh, does Corinne say that? I think Betsy might say that. I actually yeah. don't have it written down. but It's such a good line. It yeah, is, and crazy. I think it's a very accurate line as to what's going on in her. And mm-hmm. she, she like, idealizes dying. You know, it's kind of like, while she's on her deathbed, you know, she's joyful, and it's kind of like a way out of her situation. Yeah. And then afterwards, you know, she says to herself, like, why didn't I die, you know? And she's very, she's so shameful in front of her husband um, for still being, for still living, and, you know, and for seeing his depth of um of love and forgiveness at Mm -hmm. that time you know she's reduced to some sort of wretch before before him but yeah um but you mentioned vronsky and anna's relationship kind of moving towards death in a way Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas on the flip side on this part we also have levin and kitty have a bit of a development so cam i don't know if you wanted to talking speaking to that a little bit that's right so levin and kitty 
long story short, fall in love again. And it is so great. It's it's beautiful. Like it's been a long time coming. It's been a long time coming and gosh. It's definitely a part of the book that I want to come back and reread over and over again. For some reason, it arises mm-hmm. to similar emotions of uh, in The Little Woman with Lori and um, was it Joe when they dance on the porch. It's just like a very mm-hmm. jolly, happy uh, scene in in Little Woman. But I, I had the very very similar emotions in this part. It was like mm-hmm. every all this anticipation, all these expectations with. With Lev and the tension with Levin and Kitty are finally, um, they're finally coming, they're coming around and they're finally connecting and falling in love, um, which is really cool. I think it's really, in terms of Levin's character, I can see some differences and parallels between him and uh, like Karenin and Vronsky. How yeah, Levin. I specifically want to read this one part before I yeah, get read into it. that. Um, so I love how Levin goes, He it shows like how love can be irrational um, from this quote. It says, all that night and morning, Levin had lived completely unconsciously and had felt himself completely removed from the conditions of material life. He had not eaten for a whole day, had not slept for two nights, had spent several hours undressed in the freezing cold. He had felt not only fresh and healthy as never before, but completely independent of his body. He moved without any muscular effort and felt he could do anything. He was certain that he could fly into the air or lift up the corner of the house if need be. He spent the rest of the time walking the streets, constantly looking at his watch and gazing about him. When I read that, I instantly (laughs) went back to a personal experience I had at a festival. Or me and some friends were, it was towards the end of the night. We were so hungry. Like I'm, we, we had a blast. We just left Chris Stapleton. We we're riding this high, but we were so hungry. We didn't eat anything all day. And as we we're leaving the festival, we, we hear this dance music. We're like, oh, well, what's that? And and it's this DJ in this random parking lot. And and no one's da- no one's there. It's an empty parking lot. But it's just one DJ just playing this funky dance music. And oh my gosh, me and some friends just. We're like, is this happening right now? Like, we start, we start moving our hips, and we start, we start dancing. And please tell before, me that Will Ellender was there. Yes, Will Ellender was there. Oh, I love it. But we, we end up dancing. We ended up dancing that bargain lot for three or four hours. But we completely forgot. It's like we forgot we were hungry. Like we were, we were so yeah. hungry. Like we didn't eat anything the whole day. But it's weird how you can get just lost in this present moment. Um, yeah. Like it's almost, it's almost, it's, it's almost mystical. It's like Holy ground that you enter into and we were just lost in the moment, but I couldn't help but think about that with Levin. Levin, I think is in, in a more intense situation where it's not just this momentary dance, but it's a potential uh, partner for the rest of his life. And he's in love with this, with this woman. And to the point that all this conditions of his material life are um, <laughs> like, he doesn't even think about that, which I think is really, really cool. How Tolstoy kind of threw that in there because I, I'm I so practical typically too. Right. Exactly. You know, and right. 
And I feel like there's differences between his character arc and let's just say someone like Vronsky or Karenin who have these elements of wanting to control a situation. And Levin is in this position now where he's like, I give up. Like I am in love with this girl and I just give, even if it seems irrational, like I am, I know he's been using like his mental powers to like hold himself back, you know, like giving it, like trying to give like, trying to like come up with work for himself to do and, you know, come up with reasons not to go to the Shabatsky's house. Right. Now he's surrendered. And now he just lets go of his mind and lets his heart run wild. And he feels like he can, um, he can do anything. He moved, he moved without any muscular effort. He felt like he could do anything. I think it's so cool. Could I read the section right after the one that you read? Austin, I I permit you. Okay. I I love that it says, like, this is when he's, like, walking around the streets, like, totally in his own world, but also, like, not in his own world. Like, he's just, like, in the present moment, you know? Like, he's just just living. And it says, and what he saw then, he afterwards never saw again. He was especially moved by children going to school the gray blue pigeons that flew down from the roof to the pavement and the white rolls sprinkled with flour that some invisible hand had set out. These rolls, the pigeons and the two boys were unearthly things. All this happened at the same time. A boy ran up to a pigeon and smiling looked at Levin. The pigeon flapped its wings and fluttered off sparkling in the sun amidst the air, trembling with snow dust while the smell of baked bread wafted from the windows as the rolls appeared in it. All this together was so extraordinarily good that Levin laughed and wept with joy. And I'm just thinking, like, like, it makes me think of those moments where, like, I don't know, I feel like little little times of excitement and or, like, falling in love, like, things like this can, like, do to you where you just, like, see the whole world in some kind of new light and all like the most ordinary things become the most extraordinary. Um, but I, I love this for Levin of him. Like he's really just, um, I don't know. He's kind of let go and, and now he's just along for the ride. <laughs> right. One, Did, okay. One... Oh, sorry. No, you can go. Emma. I was just going to say, do you guys feel like, like this part is so good and so satisfying because it's right here in like the middle of the book. And because like both Levin and Kitty have grown so much throughout the book. Like if this is how it had gone in the first chapter, it wouldn't have meant mm. half as much. But like yeah. this whole section is really cool because when they admit feelings for each other and they, they do the little word game where they write the first letter of what they mean. Um the the like the point of all of that is that they can communicate wordlessly now because they've been through so much separately but have reached the same point. Yeah. So and they say that a few times, just like he finds so much joy in her because he can tell that she understands him so well and doesn't have to say anything. It's wordless communication. Yeah. Um I just think that's that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, Tolstoy knows what he's doing. Yeah. I wanna like draw a comparison like what is what is Tolstoy like saying about love? Because like I'm seeing like Levin and Kitty's relationship at this point, like this is such a like a bout of passion for Levin. And you know, it's not like 
they have like really reasoned out like why they're in love with each other at this point. Like, but you can see that like Tolstoy's portraying this as like such a good thing. And then on the contrary, you have like the relationship between Anna and Vronsky. And like, similarly, like these two people were drawn together by, you know, some kind of passionate love that seems unreasonable and, you know, that you like lose yourself in. And yet, like, this one love leads to so much death and destruction, whereas the other is, you know, we can already see it leading to so much life and, and happiness. And so I'm just wondering, like, what is, like, where is the difference between these two things? Like, why is there two completely different outcomes in these situations? Do you think he's trying to make a moral statement? Because Levin and Kitty are pursuing marriage very properly. And Vronsky and Anna are showing, um, like, what dishonesty does to a relationship. It might that seems kind of simple. I feel like it might be more than that, but yeah. I mean, the the one thing that, like, the thing that draws me back from saying it's like simply moral is that like that we we find out like Anna and Karenin's relationship wasn't like really. The, it's not their fault, really. That like both Karenin and Anna were kind of like put together in a way that they couldn't really mm-hmm. refuse, you know? And it was kind of like, it's hinted at by the Shabatskis, like, Oh, this was kind of a mistake and y'all were young, but right. Yeah, like, he doesn't, he doesn't seem but, like one to give a nod to the institution of marriage. Mm-hmm. That but, would be it. Maybe more of like a trying to define love in a way of, um, it being like more of a mature and honest knowing of the other instead of like a passionate mm-hmm. thing because Vronsky yeah. and Anna's love is, is purely founded on, on immediate attraction, yeah. and passion, which is very distracting from like a deep love. Whereas love and, and Kitty mm-hmm. only fall in love with air quotes, you know, like mm-hmm. only commit to marriage later once they feel like they can know each other so well that they can p- communicate without words. Yeah, you might be honest on there. I think, too, like what you said about dishonesty, like I think there's definitely something that Tolstoy is saying about deception that like any relationship founded on deception is bound to bring death. So like I think like what you're saying about the morality and now that I'm thinking about it, you know, it, it might be a moral point on deception yeah or on or on society it might be this might be like kind of a critique on the expectations that Russian society has placed on marriage and that like the the problems or like the death that comes from the like people's expectations and the deception that follows mm, I do think expectations is a big theme, yeah, and the sense of controlling. That's something mm-hmm. I see very clearly is that there's a stark contrast between Levin and everything else that's going on, like with other relationships, is that Levin is irrationally, like we were talking about a moment ago, like giving up, like shutting his mind off and be like, you know what? This is what the core of my heart yeah. is, and is in, in, I can't deny this. Like, I'm that's in love. Kind of I love Vronsky's this girl. Doing. And Vronsky's kind of doing that too, but Vronsky, but. I mean, just to recall, like, remember, like, the horse, with Frofo, whatever you, however you say, mm-hmm. it. and it's, mm-hmm. remember that moment where he tried to con- 
control the horse and he ended up mm. breaking its back in the same way where like yeah. that's obviously probably going to happen with Anna. So I feel like Tolstoy put yeah. that in there to kind of get us thinking in, the, in those lens as well to realize like maybe kind of like Vronsky's goal <coughs> isn't like the horse's well being, whereas Levin is just in love with the horse. I mean, like if we're just calling like right, if we're thinking about that analogy. Because, yeah, Vronsky's got this, like, controlling and <laughs> self-possessed spirit, and Karenin has, ne- has never made an irrational decision in his life. because <laughs> um, yeah, I the, don't think that Tolstoy is saying, like, that love should be completely rational. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think that he's saying, like, every choice we make in love should be one made from the mind. Right, because that's definitely not what's happening in Levin, and that's definitely kind of the relate. Like, I feel like Tolstoy is kind of like holding this up as, you know, a champion of how love, you know, should be. Right, and I, I really appreciate that. I definitely, I would say, I would agree with Tolstoy that there's a difference between having all these boxes checked and mm-hmm. having that. knowing that from the core of your heart that you love this particular mm-hmm. person. Like those are two different yeah, things. And totally. sometimes something may not make any sense, but you can't deny um, the calling of your heart. Yeah. Like what your heart's saying, you know, the mind, <laughs> the mind and heart can be saying two totally different things. And I think he told stories <laughs> making the case that when in doubt, go with the heart. <laughs> I'm certainly appreciate it. Okay, cool. Let's uh I think we should, let's move let's move on to uh Austin, do you want to talk a little bit about Karenin's character to close us off? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Karenin. Um yeah, I'll be quick. So basically this dude has been he's been through the ringer, you know, and like he's tried to reason his way out of every situation and, you know, be calculating and whatnot, but this is where he really comes face to face with like what's going on inside of him, I think. Um and it's such a huge turning point for his character. I think we really see, like, he really becomes less of a two-dimensional being and more of a three-dimensional person in this part. Um, you know, he gets this note that his wife is dying. And at first, he's like, ah, this is bullshit. Like, what's her goal? You know, she's trying to, like, prevent the divorce, you know, or, like, trick me. But then he's thinking, oh, well, like, what would society say if I didn't go, though, and she actually died? And so, like, that's why he goes. Uh, and he goes, you know, but there's probably, like, a little bit of curiosity, too. Like, you know, what if she really does want to repent? Um, and he goes in with this plan, you know. If she's dying, then, like, be, you know, observe propriety. If she's not dying, and, like, by observe propriety, that means, like, just, like, put on a good face, you know, for everybody. If she's not dying, then be calm, but be contemptuous, you know? So, like, he's totally going into this, like, has this plan in his mind, but it totally falls apart. And, you know, first what happens is he walks in and, you know, hears that his wife's given birth safely. And, like, he realizes, like, oh, like, she might actually not die. And he actually, like, feels afraid because he realizes, like, whoa, I've been wishing that she would die. Like, this would clear up everything. Um, but then, you know, he fi- he does find out that she's very near death, you know, and he goes in 
and seeing Anna in such a distraught condition, like his heart where he's like built up all these walls of like stone of, you know, walling off from the outside world, everything inside of him, like finally gets pierced, you know, like it's, you know, we see him suffering and just moved by moved with tenderness for Anna in a way. Cause Anna is like delirious. She's saying a whole bunch of crazy shit and she's on her deathbed and she's calling for Corinne and she's saying like, get this dude brought like, look at like Vronsky, like, what are you doing? Like, here's Corinne and like, he's, you know, this is who I want to see. And this one line I like, Alexei Alexandrovich's inner disturbance kept growing and now reached such a degree that he ceased to struggle with it. He suddenly felt what he considered an inner disturbance was on the contrary, a blissful state of soul, which suddenly gave him new previously unknown happiness. Yeah. And then he even goes on to say, you know, he was not thinking that the Christian, you know, thinking of the Christian law, which he'd wanted to follow all his life prescribed that he forgive and love his enemies. But instead, the joyful feeling of love and forgiveness of his enemies filled his soul. It's like, this is no longer like, oh, I like this is what I'm supposed to do. It's like just by seeing Anna suffering and like really reduced to to nothing, he suddenly, you know, is like driven to such a breaking point that like his his control that he tried to hold over his emotions is broken. And all that's left is just like this utter love towards his cheating wife. It's pretty crazy. I mean, I feel like this is another like place where Tolstoy is showing the difference between like in your mind thinking like I should do this because this is what's expected out of me or like I should, I'm supposed to love my enemies and that, you know, like kind of like the way that, that Kitty was being at the, at the Springs where she's like, I'm supposed to help people and I want to be, this heavenly figure. So I'm going to do this. Whereas like the more natural, um, love for the sake of love that just comes out of you. Like when you're faced with these situations, that's not something that's like contrived and that you've like, you're putting on a face, but just comes from, from something within. Um, and yeah, he like, he totally turns the corner. Like he forgives Bronski you know, he tells Ronsky, like, you can make me a laughing stuff society, but I'm not leaving my wife, you know, and forgives his wife and even starts to become attached to the illegitimate child. That's not even his, you know, it, we see him loving that child tenderly and, uh, and Vronsky witnessing all this is like, well, he, he, you know, he sees he sees this husband, quote unquote, raised to an awesome height. And before he thought he was like a pathetic being and he almost can't take it. You know, he feels shamed uh, because he couldn't even look at Anna in her debt, like in her dying moments, you know, he's hiding his face. And so um, he goes and shoots himself, which I just thought was the most dramatic thing ever. But that's, uh, yeah, but that's kind of like what's going on in that situation. And, you know, like Vronsky saved and, you know, in the eyes of Russian society, what Vronsky did was a very 
like noble brave act and so like he's able to like regain kind of his social status in a way whereas Karenin by being forgive like by forgiving and like loving an illegitimate child and his wife and not condemning her is all of a sudden ruined in the eyes of everyone else and he's made a laughing stock so i think like this is such a, a moment where we see how backwards this noble society is um and you see like where true loving values and like what is actually noble and righteous is no longer the thing that we hold up as most dear or as most um as most noble anyway so that's kind of my thoughts on that uh, I have, my questions for y'all are what is tolstoy saying about forgiveness in this in this part um and what is tolstoy saying about love I think this is genius what Tolstoy did because this whole time with Karenin's character, <clears throat> I felt very disconnected with him. But what Tolstoy does in this part and even I mean in literature is that he takes you by the hand and if you don't resonate with this character, he he proves to you that even though you think he's a machine, you didn't know mm-hmm. that he is capable of emotion like this. Yeah. Like I yeah. no no one is expecting Karenin to do that. Mm. Um and I think it's genius because part of the reason why I connect with literature is to test myself to see myself in every character. Cuz I feel like a person who really mm. knows what they're doing with the writing, especially with the novel, is it, these characters are mirrors into our own psyche, especially with this, with the Russian literature. It's, it's obvious that the, the Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, they're just geniuses with this, but that's what this, what Karenin's character does is that he may not be this passionate hero, but he, he's not a machine, which we, yeah. that's what I've been saying. That's what we've been talking about the past couple episodes and parts that he is a machine. He's cold. He's very calculated, but even a character like him is capable of forgiving someone, his wife in this terrible, awful situation. And I think it just, if anything, it could inspire us to forgive our own enemies. Even if we feel like we are a machine or we don't feel like we're capable of doing it. This gives us some hope that even someone like Corinne can turn a corner and do it. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Emma, do you have any thoughts about um, kind of that forgiveness scene or like the comparison between um, Karenin and um, Vronsky? I mean, I I think you guys summarized it pretty well. What astonished me is that it didn't kind of come out of nowhere. So I was just toying around with the idea of maybe he felt so magnanimous because all of a sudden the power was shifted away from Anna because she was in control of the situation. And then suddenly he's like, it is all kind of in Karen's basket, like whatever he wants to do. Yeah. So his insecurity's not speaking out so much. Yeah. Um, I didn't think about that. It's like by giving him the free ability 
ability to cho- to choose, he decides to lay it all down. Right. Like it, it is his, like still credit to him because the way that he forgives so fully, he can't, can't even understand where it comes from. I think they attest it to like to God at some point in that chapter. Like maybe it's from God because I've never seen this in myself before. Mm-hmm. Um, so when given the option, when the power is like kind of removed from any single party in the situation, he does choose forgiveness, which is really cool. Um, and then it contrasts really strongly to Anna because while, while Anna's in like her demented kind of um, feverish phase, she, she pities and, and falls back in love with Karen in a way. But as soon as she regains like a semblance of reason where she realizes like she's lost all of her power, she, she's not going to escape all of this through mm-hmm. death, then his forgiveness ends up make, like highlighting her own guilt even more. Yeah. Because yeah. Karen tries to write a letter to her because he knows that he bothers her. Like all the little things that she resents about him come back. All the little things she chooses to focus on instead of what's actually like the root of the issue in their marriage. Like all yeah. the little physical things that she focuses on. She starts to, they bother her. And so he writes her letter and he's like, I'm willing to take all the blame. But then he shows it to her, her brother, um, Stefan. And Stefan basically says that you're going to crush her with your generosity if you give yeah. her this letter because it's, it's just like, going to make her feel so guilty, you know? Yeah. It's almost like it'd be easier if she could just, ha- just hate him mm-hmm. <laughs> and seeing him love her. So like she realized like she could never attain the same. Right. Cause she's gotten this far by telling herself that Karen doesn't care and has no emotions. And so she's really not doing anything too terrible mm-hmm. by leaving a loveless marriage. But then when she sees that he actually cares about her, it adds like a whole nother layer of guilt onto her psyche. Yeah. It doesn't make it any easier for her. (laughs) It makes Mm -hmm. it, um, but that, I don't think that's Corinne's intention, but yeah, that's just how it's going to probably unfold. And so, yeah, yeah, such an awesome. It's just, you can see this coming from such a long way off. And like at so many points, you think that like Tolstoy could I don't know. There's just moments where like it could turn one way or turn another. And yet it just continues on this awful course. Mm-hmm. It's so tragic, but it makes it so entertaining, <laughs> but it's also <laughs> we live for the drama. That's, that's oh, it's such a good book. Yeah. That's such a good book. <laughs> Gosh. Well, one thing I want to add before we conclude is the, the parallel between, um, you see Levin's character and you see Karenin's character go through, such a cardinal hinge, cardinal, um, pivotal change in their life. And the common denominator of both of them, of what I'm observing is vulnerability Mm. that when they, in the same way that Levin Mm. gives his way, listens to his heart. And it's like, okay, I'm a, this seems irrational, but I'm gonna listen to my heart and follow this. And I'm tired. I'm tired of spending the mental energy of they call it ma- uh, masking. I think in psychology, you're spending this mental energy trying to be someone else or cover something up. And you're like, okay, I'm done masking. It just takes more mental energy. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. do what I want, be who I am, follow my heart, 
and give my way, give up to this uh, irrational, what seems irrational decision. In the same way, Crennan does the same exact thing when he cries. Because if you, one, if you it, one thing I've noticed is that when he cry, he always looked at people crying as like stupid, <laughs> think irrational. Yeah. I can never understand it because it couldn't connect with them. But just the image, like if I could draw an, a picture of the, um, this part, it would be just an image of Corinne and crying because that's something he, you would never expect him doing, but mm. he does it. And the portal to him changing as a person is vulnerability. And I, mm. it's definitely something I appreciate with this part um, because it's something that I um, continually remind myself was like how powerful that out of all the human emotions we experience, there's no human emotion that connects us more than vulnerability. Um, and I took that from Dr. Brene Brown, who I love. love it. She, uh, yeah, this episode has life lessons, right? Yeah. I love that. No, it's so true though, that like, you know, the not being vulnerable, oftentimes is like what is keeping us from connecting with people. So, you know, it's these barriers we put up around ourselves to protect ourselves that end up um, shutting ourselves off from, from people who might love us. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Powerful. Awesome. I think, uh, I think that's time. Um, I think it's a good place to leave off. Uh, Thank you, Emma Savoie and, Austin Clark for Thank joining you, us. It all. <laughs> <laughs> we should. We should I, I think next time we should start addressing everyone by their last name. Only last names. Mrs. Mm, Mrs. Miss Clark. <laughs> Y'all have the Mr. most Clark. like. <laughs> my name is just so English compared to uh, Austin. Can you pronounce your last name for us, please? So I can. Yeah. Or Mr. Uh, Commissioner. I'll have to say something like Clark. <laughs> Clock. Vidal. Vidal. Is your last name German, Cam? Uh, it's Spanish. Spanish. Oh, never mind. That makes that. sense. We can cut that out. <laughs> right. <laughs> but thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we're trying to get better at this. It, this is a journey. This is a process. But thank journey, you for baby. everyone who Bless. is listening to. If you if you're listening to episode four this podcast gosh we we really appreciate you and if you if you're listening to the episode for this podcast we'd love to have you on the podcast cause wow yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. if you're listening at this point get the fuck on here come yeah on. <laughs> yeah come on we want you uh but yeah thank you all everyone all right. and hope send we'll Cameron an email yeah s- send me an email send send, an email follow me on the on the social meets but yeah, we'll see y'all next week for episode five. five. Woo! Woo. <laughs>